When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. I would be Bradshaw. That would be the WWE Hall of Famer, Oklahoma's favorite son, Mr. Gerald Briscoe. And he is a founding member of the Killer Bees, two-time Florida heavyweight champion, Hall of Fame member, George Stragos, Luthez Hall of Fame, and author of Truth Be Told. He is Mr. B. Brian Blair. Welcome to the show. Good to be here, John. Good to be here, Gerald. I really appreciate being on your show. Well, John, uh, John, not only is he all of, the, all of those accolades that, uh, that you laid out so eloquently, but he's also a former uh, Hillsborough County uh, commissioner of one of the largest counties in the United States. Brian was a uh, for for a, a glorious eight year, four years, four year term, I believe it was, right? To Brian? Six years. I'm two, two as the uh, chairman of the Citizens Advisory Board, uh, four as uh, uh, at-large Hillsborough County Commission. And from what I read, Brian, Brian on uh, Wikipedia, which is always right, everybody knows <laughs> the internet's always right. right, you have a record for the most letters to this day at Hillsborough High School. Tampa Bay Tech High School, that's correct. Yeah, that's because I was poor. I had nothing to do but sports. What uh, <laughs> do you flunk two years too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was 23 when he graduated. Yeah, he, he did his last letter when he, I think I went first met him. He was 21 or 22 years old. I already been a pro wrestler for four years. And still wrestling these high school kids. <laughs> uh, I don't believe Gerald Briscoe. Oh, that guy has more, more ribs on me, John, than you can imagine. And um, there's a lot of them in Truth Be Told, but I'll tell a few of them today that aren't even in the book. Because in the book, Truth Be Told, which is available on Amazon, as a matter of fact, there's not one bad review about the book, not one bad word said, thousands of copies sold, beautiful reviews. I, I can't thank the people enough who have read the book and uh, given those reviews. Um, it, it's uh, a fascinating story, which we can get into in a little bit, but um, uh, I've got some visual aids as well that uh, should really entertain the people. I mean, this is going to be a great show, so please keep listening to this podcast. You're going to love it. Brian, I just want to know one thing. You broke in with Gerald and Jack Briscoe. You lived with the Von Erichs. How are you still alive? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, some things can't be told. You got to take to the grave with you, right, John? <laughs> so I tell the things that, that can be told and uh, or that, uh, uh, you know, as a you know guy that wants to continue my friendships <laughs> will be told. <laughs> um, you know, there, even the things that I tell and that you'll hear on this podcast coming up are 100% accurate, true stories. Um, and, um, you know, the things I, that I can't tell, I wish someday that, that I could, but I wouldn't do it without getting their permissions. <laughs> it was, it was a job of survival, John. 
Well, Brian, Brian, when I first met you, I, I believe you were babysitting for Buddy Coach uh, kids at that time. That's really how you, you kind of got your foot in the door. You'd, you'd grown up, of course, in, in Tampa and uh, was a fantastic Hillsborough County athlete. And uh, and uh, and uh, Buddy lived down the street from you, and uh, you, you ended up uh, helping Buddy out by babysitting with him and, and kind of got your foot in the door like that. Is that true? That's absolutely true. I, I did a lot of babysitting, um, of course, for Buddy. I'll circle back to that. And uh, for um, uh, the Nasty Boys, Brian Saganovich, for uh, his wife, um, it's, it's amazing how far back that, that I go. I, um, you know, I went to junior high school at Webb Middle School, um, with uh, Steve Kern's wife, um, all all these, you know, there was trust and respect developed with all these uh, people, and uh, it's it's wonderful to have that trust and respect. Uh, Saganovich is actually proud to say, "Hey, that that was my wife's babysitter." You know, I mean, you know, this some good stuff. I babysat Fred Ottman's uh, former wife, uh, Bobby Ann Rodriguez, and. Um, you know, that was just one of the ways I always had to work and do something because I lived on my own <clears throat> right before my 16th birthday. And um, I got busted for uh, taking food stamps to the USAVE at Sly in Armenia. And uh, uh, there was some ugly stuff written uh, in front of Egypt Lake Elementary School when that happened because two of the big bullies in school saw me in line. And uh, my mom dropped me off, I kissed her, uh, about 300 yards from Egypt Lake and uh, didn't want any of my friends to see me kiss my mom and walked to the school the next morning and there was green spray paint all over Egypt Lake Elementary School calling me all kinds of names. So um, it, it gave me a lot of motivation and a lot of drive. And um, so whether it was babysitting, whether it was selling Cokes at the Tampa Stadium, shoes at Kmart, welding mailbox posts, um, you know, the book kind of gets in, just touches on that kind of stuff because you don't want to bore people with too much of your life. But uh, uh, there's a lot of other great stuff in there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think growing up in the face of adversity is a, a very good thing. But I can't say that I had more adversity than breaking into the business and more difficulty because over in the dungeon, in uh, 106 North Albany Street, where we broke in in Florida, um, where I met, well, I met Gerald uh, somewhere along the line there, and and Jack. Well, let me just go back for one second, <clears throat> not to be too scattered, but babysitting Buddy Colt, I had already had a Jack Briscoe was my hero, a total hero, and you know I'd see him his bag, and I knew that he had that plastic thumb in there. And I almost stole it one time because I didn't want him to use it on Jack. And, it, you know, I was so, you know, such a Jack Briscoe fan that it was crazy. You know, Gerald was still in the Carolinas at the time or Georgia or, you know, traveling uh, the circuit. And uh, Jack and I became so close that, you know, he'd have me stay with Jan sometimes just to watch out for her. And, you know, I, I was kind of a babysitter, a mentor, a friend and, you know, it was because of guys like Gerald, Jack, uh, Buddy, so many of these people that uh, that taught me a lot of good values besides all the pranks and the jokes and, you know, the things that we'll laugh at during this podcast. These guys actually taught me 
solid values. Even, you know, drinking, getting drunk on the road, that's not a, that's not a good value. But at the same time, away from all that, it was, it was a lot of fun, even though most of the ribs were on me. You know, you, you, wanted, you just wanted at first to be a football player, though, right? I mean, that was your goal. And then uh, the local college, University of Tampa, dropped their football program. And is that how you got into wrestling to begin with? Uh, was when that happened? No, actually, uh, my senior year in high school, Eddie Graham was a big promoter. Uh, Eddie Graham was the owner of the predominant owner on the most stock in championship wrestling from Florida. The Briscoes owned some stock. I think Natsuda owned it. Uh, at one time, uh, Buddy Colt even had a couple points, but um, uh, Gerald could tell you more who the uh, various owners were of the company. But Eddie Graham was the head guy, and he liked to build a solid foundation. He wanted to make sure that uh, it said wrestling on the marquee, and he wanted his wrestlers to know how to wrestle and to take care of themselves. And he was also a, a great promoter with the sheriff's uh, uh, boys and girls ranches. Uh, he... Uh, as a matter of fact, yesterday I was talking to my junior uh, high school coach, Coach Zimmerman, and uh, Phil Zimmerman, and, and um, uh, he was a, a good friend. He actually worked for Eddie Graham. Him and Frank Zane, they were like huge bodybuilders, and um, uh, he said uh, Eddie caught him laying on the dock getting sun when they were supposed to be mentoring the kids, is what he told me yesterday, and uh, gave him like a kind of a zinger talk, but then smiled and gave him a hug. And he said he uh, Eddie was such a good motivator. Um, yeah, I remember sitting upstairs from championship wrestling from Florida with Eddie Graham, watching these uh, hookers get uh, bust these Johns on Kennedy Avenue uh, in Tampa. Just, just so many great memories that are swirling through my mind right now. But uh, Eddie uh, would go to amateur uh, wrestling matches at times, and he'd bring a few of the boys with him. One time he brought Jack and Kern and it was just like, ah, oh, my mouth was wide open when I saw them. So I was, you know, I'd watch uh, championship wrestling on uh, from Florida on WTOG on Saturdays and I would never miss it. I, then I started going to the armory. I couldn't afford to buy a ticket and I'd hang out and uh, eventually Steve Kern picked me up and let me carry his bag up the stairs. So I got to go into the locker room and, you know, of course I knew Buddy and he, he kind of just shied me away from the business till the time was right. But I actually started working out my senior year, uh, the summer of my senior year in high school for three summers. Brian, 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 uh, uh, you know, you you mentioned a little bit earlier about Eddie and the uh, uh, Florida Sheriff's Boys Range. John, uh, Titus O'Neill is, is a product of that of that school. Titus, this is a school up in Live Oak, Florida, out in the middle of nowhere, and mm -hmm. it's more at-risk people. And the, and the sheriff, uh, the local county sheriff's got to approve it, and you got to meet special financial needs. But Titus, uh, you know Titus' story, of course. You know, Titus ended up at there and, of course, became a, you know, one of the greatest football players University of Florida has ever produced and, and a WWE superstar. Not only that, but Titus here locally in the community, he's one of the biggest philanthropists that we probably have in, in our county today. So the Florida Sheriff's Boys Race that Eddie helped pioneer and helped program and helped start, 
has produced citizens like that. So we're, we're very proud of, of that. And then all of the wrestlers had to be so involved, right, Brian? We go up and we, had, we do free shows for them. All of 100% of the proceeds would go, of course, to the Florida Sheriff's Boys Ranch, right. not Florida, uh, uh, Boys and Girls Ranch. But uh, Eddie, Eddie's one, and he actually got the um, the blueprint from uh, – Dory Funk Sr., Cal Farley out 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 in Amarillo territory is where, where the ideal for Terry because Dory Sr. and Eddie were so close that Eddie really mirrored everything that kind of like Dory Sr. did. Right, right, Brian? Yeah, yes, and then so many people emulated Eddie, like Bill Watts. You know, Bill Watts was a huge student of uh, Eddie Graham's. So, Brian, when you said you started training, how did that – actually work formatically i mean did you tell eddie or, or buddy that you wanted to start training then you started going to the gym when did you end up with hero matsuda how did that process become uh, more formal well i graduated from high school in 1975 um and uh i tell you my age now but um, um when i first went there <laughs> it was uh very intimidating uh seeing hero matsuda was intimidating by itself in the first few days. Um, it was uh, it was brutal because we had to do Hindu squats. We got I got from doing being able to do two sets of fifty to being able to do five sets of a hundred. Uh, you know, jump squats. Uh, being able to do three hundred push-ups, fifty at a time. Strict push-ups now, fifty strict push-ups at a time, three hundred. Then you'd wrestle amateur wrestle for, they wouldn't smarten you up. It's not like today, grab a headlock and do this. You had to learn, we were learning uh, MMA before MMA was cool. And we were getting, Harold would stretch the pee out of you. Then Carl Gotch would come in and stretch the pee. They, they don't, he'd always bring somebody in to teach you a little more, whether it was Bob Backlund, whether it was Gerald, whether it was Jack, it was always somebody coming in that knew a lot more than the students. So during the next three summers, over a hundred people came in and the only people that made it through these summers were Terry Bollea, Hulk Hogan, and uh, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. Um, and, uh, you know, Paul was such a natural, um, he was so strong and I was kind of like the hitman stretching guy, even though I got stretched by the other ones and I'd have to stretch the marks and, uh, oh God, there's some funny stories when, uh, Buddy Colt's uh, uh, soon-to-be uh, brother-in-law beat up his mother and his wife and wanted a match with Dusty Rhodes. Um, he, uh, Buddy said, this was my, my second summer in the camp, and I was getting pretty polished at all the things that they had taught me. Plus, um, you know, I was fighting all my life just to save my own hide. Um, I never started a fight in my life. And, um, but for some reason I wound up in too many, but, uh, buddy said, listen, he told me about the kid and he said, I want you to break something up. They always wanted you to break a bone. And I, I just didn't have that in my heart to do that. You know, I just, I can't, I, anyway, this kid, he's about six, three, um, two forty. He comes into the ring and he's got jeans on like uh dusty roads because he wants a, he seriously wants a match with dusty roads he's already uh broken his putting his mother uh in the hospital by pushing her down the stairs broke her arms 
uh, hurt uh, uh, Buddy's wife really, really bad. And uh, this guy's just the epitome of a bully, redneck, out of control person. And um, so he's in the ring. I remember him jumping back and forth, uh, twirling his arms like the dream and telling me he was going to kick my ass. And uh, Buddy said, okay, you guys got to, he gave me the pep talk before. And I look around and, you know, there's no fans in there, but Eddie Graham's, so there's people all around, Don Morocco, all kinds of people fill up in there because they want to watch this. I guess Buddy went and told him, look, somebody's getting beat up, come down and watch. So uh, uh, I'm in the ring just being humble and watching this kid. And all of a sudden, you know, Buddy says, shake hands and uh, let's go. And as I went to shake his hand, he went, ah to the side and I thought he was going to spit to the side and he turned back around like this and lube me right in my face well he shouldn't have done that um so <laughs> to make a long story short he was a bloody pulp I mean I the most juice you've probably seen broken nose he, eye sockets were closed and he's trying to run out the door in the sportatorium and as he hits the the handle there the exit Blackjack Mulligan's coming in. And I, I remember Blackjack going, looking at the kid. And then he looked at me and he goes, damn, I'm sure glad I'm already broke in. Like, you know, I'm going to do something to Blackjack. <laughs> that ain't happening. So uh, <laughs> the kid uh, ran out to the to Albany Street, which is front of the Sportatorium where we used to film TV too. And uh, I chased him out there till Buddy finally got me back. But Buddy's wife wouldn't speak to me for several years after that. So no good, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, John, that 106 to Albany was the office. It was not like the sportatorium. You know, you get guys strangling in there all the time. I want to be a wrestler. I want to be a wrestler. And of course, you know, we obliged them. <laughs> we were <laughs> yeah, well over, well over a hundred people came during those three summers. Now, was you there, uh, Ron Simmons? Was that uh, before you or right after you or what? Ron Simmons and Logan? I believe he, Ron was right after me along with Hercules, uh, and uh, several people tried, like Dan Spivey, several people, um, uh, Razor Ramon quit. They quit and broke in somewhere else. Uh, uh, the last student that I remember with Hero was, um, was uh, Lex Luger. But, uh, you know, you couldn't just pay. There was no money exchanged. It was just they wanted people that could take care of themselves, that acted like gentlemen that dressed right. You know, Eddie wanted all these these particular things out of his uh, new uh, crop of wrestlers and, uh, or I should say new couple of wrestlers. And, you know, so they just whittled it down. Uh, now, it was, this is this is during your, your Louisville days as a, as a yes. football player. You were yes. coming down on the summer times and, uh, and just working out on the summertime, correct? I ride all summer long. Terrible. I mean, it was kept you in shape for football. Oh, yes, absolutely. I go back and everything was a piece of tape. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Whew. 
Christmas is finally behind us, but are you dreading those credit card bills headed your way? Well, here's a pro tip. Don't get stuck making minimum payments in the new year. Savewithconrad.com can help you get rid of your credit card debt just like that. Oh, and we're going to get you the best deal on a mortgage you've ever had. But how's this for starters? No payments until March. You don't need money out of your pocket or perfect credit. So find out how much money you can save for free right now at savewithconrad.com. So, Brian, you had a conscience. Uh, Gerald Briscoe doesn't. I, I don't know where he missed that in his class, his wrestling class. But Gerald's beat me up like 2,000 times over the last 30 years. I, I've won twice, but I've lost about 2,000. And uh, he he shows no mercy. He doesn't mind breaking bones. He doesn't mind blooding me. He, he's just – he's very mean. So, he, somewhere he missed the conscience class in Hero Matsuda's training. I agree, John. We were uh, coming from Tallahassee one night. We wind up in this truck stop. It was for uh, the the leader of the pack shirt, I believe. (laughs) That's right. And uh, Gerald goes to the restroom. Uh, Jack heads to the truck stop, and I'm sitting in the car for a minute. And I said, well, I got to pee, too. So I head in the restroom, and I see Gerald there. Uh, He's at the urinal. So I pulled him back from the urinal real quick, just grabbed him from behind. He didn't know it was me. So he instinctively turns around and he leg dies. So when, when he did that, I sprawled and we start turning around. And I mean, to talk about re- this guy is relentless. We wound up going through the stalls, breaking all the stalls down. We were a bloody and pee all over us. It was horrible. Absolutely. Horrible. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we were, you know, a little few too many beers, but uh, it, oh. was, it was Gerald. Uh, <laughs> instinct that killer instinct i mean i thought he was just going to turn around and laugh so brian were you ever in uh, the uh, wrestling matches for the leader of the pack shirt um no that i left uh right before they started all that i wound up going to bill watson's territory um but um we've got a lot of stories besides the leader of the pack which gerald can embellish on gerald embellish on something never Hey, uh, I, I do want to ask you real quick. Uh, I saw an interview that Don Morocco did. It's a funny story where he they tells you that you're in the back of Gerald and Jack's car, and he tells you to get in the trunk, and you're going to moon the heels going down the road. And instead of pulling up to the heels, they pull up to whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. Let me tell you this, the real deal story on uh, it. The real deal. Okay, the real deal story is this. I have been in uh, there, there's a there's legend uh, story that there's my story that Brian's a real deal story. That's <laughs> right. I'm going to tell you the truth be told story. And because um, I was the victim, I know what happened. <laughs> okay. Gerald had a uh, Lincoln Versailles, a pretty brand new one. It was relatively new. And I was uh, very impressed. Jack had a Bill Blass edition. And brand new Lincoln. Pat Patterson had a brand, brand new Lincoln. Pat Patterson was always messing with me. He wouldn't stop. As a matter of fact, let me just a little precursor to this before I actually started just maybe the week before I started wrestling, I walked into the sportatorium and there's a black X on the, uh, on the wall and a pile of money and the American dream's got his feet up on the table and it's full of people. And I don't remember if it was Gerald or they were blindfolded and there's a pot of money and it was, uh, I'm watching the guys missing the X because you got to get blindfolded about 10 feet back and hit the X and you win the whole pot. And that pot was big and I didn't have any money and I looked. So uh, 
Dusty goes, hey, people, you got a dollar? I said, yes, sir. He goes, you think you could hit that X? I said, for a dollar, I'll try. And so everybody's looking at me. So they put the blindfold on. And uh, Jack was telling me, aim good, aim good. I'll never forget. Aim good, beeper, aim good. And uh, so I got the aim just right, blindfold. I start moving forward. I know where that X is. I've got it lined up perfect. And as I get right about, I know I'm getting close. And all of a sudden, boom, my finger hits something that feels really weird. And I go, with the blindfold and it's Pat Patterson bent over and I hit him right in the booty hole. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, so now we're driving in, uh, we have, we go down to West Palm beach. What happened the week before? Uh, I have to tell you, but this is, I've been in the business for like a week now, uh, 10 days. And, uh, we're in, uh, Gerald's driving in his Versailles Jackson, the passenger seat. I'm in the back seat by myself. This is coming back from West Palm Beach. All of a sudden, we hear the horns honk, and it's uh, Pat Patterson's gold Lincoln Town car, and Louis Dondero, Pat Patterson's boyfriend's mooning us out the moonroof. And uh, Frankie Kane's the great Mephisto's uh, in the front seat. Uh, they're looking at us. I'm looking at them, and we're looking at them. And Jack was the first one to pipe up, and he said damn beeper that patterson never stops effing with you and i we got to do something to get him back and gerald chimes in yeah we got to get him back let's so one of them says let's pass him up. let's pass up uh uh the uh town car patterson and pretend like we're peeing and we're like 30 miles from yeehaw junction and when they pass us up uh, uh we'll pass them back up and uh, we'll get right in front of them and there's not gonna be anybody around and we'll press the trunk button on the count of three. You get, well, you get in the trunk uh, after we pee and they pass us up and cause there's not gonna be anybody around. And uh, you're gonna moon them good and get them back. And I thought, wow, this sounds great. Oh, beautiful plan. So they pass us up, we're peeing. I get in the trunk got the country music playing as a matter of fact i'm gonna tell you about this 40 year old tape cassette pretty soon but anyway uh the, we knew all the words to the songs and uh <laughs> i get in the truck i hear jack and gerald can you breathe yeah i can breathe okay we see him we're right we're right behind him now we're getting ready to pass him up i feel the car kind of accelerate hold on they're they're stopping or something for some reason uh you know the they're talking to me the music's up loud i i can breathe i'm getting excited my pants are at my ankles in the trunk but i had enough room because he had the link in there so the pants are at the ankles and uh okay okay hold on well now they're peeing we gotta we gotta just pass them up for a second so i feel the car stop and feel it go but again the music's going they're talking to me loud uh and uh so either jack or gerald again i can't remember which one of them said okay both of them were on my butt though get ready to moon them good I said, I got my cheeks on my booty. Good. Spread it. Get them good. I said, okay, okay. And I heard one, two, three, trunk button flies up in the air. I shake my butt to moon them. I know they're right behind me. I turn around to see them. And what they had done during that little uh, uh, diversion 
was they backed up into the Stucky's restaurant picture window and it was full of people, full of people. And it kept getting fuller and fuller. And Jack, uh, Gerald's on the horn. <laughs> Will not let off the horn. I, I didn't know what to do. I turn around and I see this, uh, this uh, uh, bus guy tapping this old lady on the shoulder and uh, they're pointing at me and still going honk. I can't figure out what to do. So I said, I got to get out of this trunk. So I go to get out of the trunk. I fall down and now they've gotten more than a moon. So I get around and I'm trying to pull my pants up and grab the back door and they're taking off about a foot in front of me just <laughs> where I can't reach it. And I'm going, I'm going, I'm trying to get to that back. And all of a sudden they take off uh, and down Alligator Alley, whatever, uh, 60, Highway 60. And uh, I'm left there. I look over and there's Pat, Louie and them laughing their fannies off. So I don't dare go by their car. I don't know what's happening. I don't know if they're coming back. I've never been so embarrassed. On <laughs> TV the next uh, uh, two days later, Gordon Soley says, uh, we'd like to thank uh, Brian Blair for his public appearance at Yeehaw Junction. So <laughs> to let everybody know. So anyway, but to, after that, I was smart enough. You mentioned the Von Erics. I got Kerry Von Erich on the exact rib, but they knew him because I was a nobody. They knew <laughs> Kerry Von Erich when uh, I got him at the Dallas uh, truck stop with the same rib. Yeah, Jerry, you just, go ahead, Don. Jerry, you don't feel bad about that? I, you know, John, I did for a little bit, but it's turned out to the test of time being one of the greatest ribs ever pulled. And, 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 uh, and these guys were brutal. Every time I would go to Jackson and Brian, well, Brian, during, during all of his candidate days when he was running for councilman, he would ask me to make a few appearances, but I'd have to swear by a blood oath that I wouldn't bring up Yeehaw Junction. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that was funny. I mean, there's so many things from the orange fights at Gerald's house. We had an orange fight uh, one time and the, all the oranges, we could only use the ones that had fallen on the ground. Gerald had a big, like a orange orchard and uh, grapefruits and tangerine. The Grove. The Grove, Grove, thank you. Uh, and yeah, Florida, uh, more don't know an orchard from a Grove. No, orchard where they have apples. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, uh, Somebody hit somebody with the grapefruit or an orange, and it started. It was um, Gerald, Jack, Morocco, um, Jimmy Garvin, myself, Kern. Steve Kern. Anyway, Magnum TA, Magnum TA, they were yeah, all Magnum TA. John, John, I had this one the grapefruit tree that grew these. They called them Ponderosa grapefruits. The damn things are, are this big around they're, they're sour as hell so but they'd fall on the ground because nobody would ever pick them he wouldn't eat them they'd fall on the ground and they'd get you know how, how citrus gets that real mushy smelly feel oh. one day brian's pulling out of the driveway so jack grabs a handful of them he runs up the front of my my, my property line there so brian's out of course he's easy feeling good and everything and uh there's some Odessa orange involved, I believe, somewhere along the line. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he's pulling out. He had just had one of his many operations. I think he had a cast on his hand. So Jack is up there. So as Brian pulling back, Jack wheels back, and he throws one of these gigantic rotten grapefruits. 
And Brian just, he's trying, you can see Brian trying to roll up an automatic window there's only so fast. And that thing just clears a window. So Brian instinctively puts his hand after he just had a surgery on. That damn grapefruit hits him, splatters. Now, this is the 70s. And and, and I got to say, Brian Blair was a, a GQ man, if you know what I mean. He had hair at the time. He had it all fluffed out. You know, he'd just come from the beauty salon. He had on his Gucci uh, sweats and all this stuff. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Brian had just come from the beauty salon? Yeah, yeah. Oh, he's embellishing a little bit. <laughs> and he had his hair fluffed out. Just, oh, yeah. I just like, like, ten minutes like Miami Vice, you know. What is that? <laughs> Whatever, yeah, but and, and so anyway, that, that rotten damn grapefruit just explodes all in his car, all on his Gucci uh, warm ups. And- <laughs> they were from Kmart. Uh, his Calvin Klein hairdo and all that stuff. <laughs> He's so mad at us, but he just keeps on driving. No, but but that, that was the thing. You came out here, it was at your own risk. I mean, we we, we talked Brian and getting in a canoe. Oh, Brian was, was so easy, man. And so, you know, you know we, we've been living out here a long time. So all, all the neighborhood kids, they know who they are. They'd come over and we'd canoe with them. We'd raft with them. We'd, you know, they're kids just like we were. We are kids just like they were, you know. So, so all the neighborhood kids would come over, and they were great. They'd do chores for you and all that stuff. And then you'd play in the lake. But there were these two kids, Bubba and somebody, Bubba and uh, Anthony or something. But they wanted to go canoeing, and Jack's Lake is off in a, in a wildlife preserve about a couple of miles from there. At the end of it, man, there's alligators all over the place, right, Brian? Lots of them. Yeah. Oh, these kids want to go out, so they they just spotted a whole nest of baby alligators. Oh, that's right. So Brian wants to go out. Say, so take take it over, Brian. But I, but I'll probably jump in and tell the right story because you'll leave out the good parts. Okay, so. <laughs> So they talked me into getting into the canoe with these two kids and to go see the baby alligators. These kids are emphatic. And I figured, well, if the kids can go see them, I'm safe. So I get in the canoe and they uh, it's probably 50 yards across the uh, from Jack's uh, bank to where the alligators are supposed to be. So they paddle over there and we get close to the shore. And all of a sudden I see these little alligators just jumping in the water, just jumping in the water i thought wow that's really cool until i saw this tail about 15 feet from us go a big old tail so you know that's the mama and i said you guys get back there right now get back there right now they said okay okay i said hurry up they said now this is january is panicking I've got brand new right country boys. Right God, they don't care. Time. These kids are country boys. They grew up out here, so they, you know they've been in the water with them all their life. Yeah, and believe me, the water gets cold in Florida, and it's January. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I get, tell them to get back. I got the brand new sweats uh, sweats that I got for Christmas, a new Timex watch. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was uh, very scared, very scared, and and we get about. Oh, I don't know, 20 yards from shore. And all of a sudden I see a big wheelbarrow and Jack and Jerry are carrying this wheel wheelbarrow and it's full of citrus fruit. I could see it from there. All of a sudden, boom, they start launching it at us and the kids are laughing and they start swinging the paddles and the canoes going like this. And I know that alligator somewhere close and uh, they're 
swinging and I said, quit, 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 stop, stop. And all of a sudden one of them swings the paddle and the grapefruit hits me in the face and the whole canoe tipped over. I swam right over those kids scared to death i just swam right over those two kids i said i'm getting to the shore he's loop. pushing them underwater Johnny. <laughs> no i, I wasn't that he's pushing them underwater stepping on them trying to get to the dock get on jack flipping him off of the lightning uh, and these poor two, two, little, two little kids are about to drown out there but brian don't care he's walking on them they're on the bottom oh come on <laughs> i didn't knock on them. i swam over them and so I get to the shore and I'm, my heart's going boom, boom, boom. And I'm, I can't figure out why I can't walk. Well, my sweatpants were two feet longer than my shoes. And I looked down and my brand new Timex watch is filled up with water and I was freezing. And uh, these guys are just sitting on the bank laughing so hard, so hard. They thought that was so funny. So, Jerry, you, you had a, a put Brian out there in the middle of a crocodile, an alligator infested lake. And then you tried to knock him out of the boat. But he was in a boat, John. We gave him a boat. We gave him protection. I mean, he, you know, you know, he he dumped the boat over on itself, is all I got to say. Brian did say, you know, he had no coordination at a boat. Oh, it'll be kind. Yeah, of. right. You coordinate <laughs> yourself with a grapefruit in the face from 20 yards, <laughs> 15 yards, whatever it was. <laughs> Hey, Brian, was uh, was Kern always, talk about alligators, was Kern always this big outdoor guy that he became later in life? I mean, when he, when he first ran into him, was he already the guy that knew all about wildlife and, and would grab alligators and all that? He pretty much did because, you know, there's alligators around Florida all the time, and you'd go to Alligator Alley when we go to Miami. Um, you'd have to go through Alligator Alley. They didn't have a fence on both sides of the road like they do now. And they would hit alligators all, all the time. And Kern was always looking for alligators so he could stick them, either a small one so he could stick it in someone's bag, uh, a bigger one so he could stick it in the car, uh, just always ribs. So, yeah, he had been around a lot of alligators. And which reminds me of another story. My first week in the business, I'm uh, in the back seat and I fall asleep. And uh, we're going to West Palm Beach again, Monday. And... Uh, I'm with Steve Kern and Gerald Briscoe and they take the clock and they move it an hour faster. And when I wake up, the, the, no, they told me, they hey, beep, beep, get up, get up. We're late. We're late. I said, what do you mean? And he said, yeah, we're late. We're late. Look, oh my gosh, the show's getting ready to start. This is like my first match away from other than my first match on TV. It's my first house show match. I'm going, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. Pat Patterson had given me up purple and gold sequin jacket. I wish I had that jacket. now. And uh, uh, I had the jacket. They made me get dressed in all my gear in the back of the car. And it was, it was brutal because I was hurrying and they were on my case. You're going to be late your first day. You're going to be fired. You're going to be blackballed. I didn't know what blackballed was until they explained it to me. So uh, um, I didn't care. I just wanted to get into the building. And in West Palm beach, the fans, fill up across the top so they can say hello and wave at the wrestlers and all that when you go into the building into the entrance so they pull up into the entrance squealing and i jump out of the car and run and people are like waving at me uh good luck in your first match because you know the television told the story and uh i run in and beat on the door the door is not open and the janitor comes and opens the door he said uh, we're going to open door in two minutes, sir. We, you're, you're early. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
it was so embarrassing again. It, it, <laughs> I never I never got a, a a word in edgewise really with these guys. They uh they beat me up bad. They they did so many cruel things. If I had this stuff on tape right now, people would would pay to watch it. I promise you that. It, well, your first match, you had uh, Hulk Hogan's uh Terry's first yeah, match. That, that, was that was my first that was my first match. It was my first week. That was uh that was Saturday at a spot show in um uh on the way up uh, north from here. Um oh god, I can't think of the little town there. Um that was my first match. So this was like maybe uh, my third match, second, third match. And you had a rib pulled on you in that match with uh, Hogan too, right? About about time. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So we were supposed to have a 15-minute draw. And uh we actually knew that. They told us ahead the time and so we worked on some stuff um which you know eventually you know how it works John. we never did that later on in life just knew the finish basically and uh so anyway terry and i did the best we could working out a 15 minute match and all of a sudden about we hear five minutes gone you know we're doing some nice spots and um i, I got terry in a reverse chin lock and he goes Hey, Brian, look, look, everybody's watching our match. And I look around and there's everybody, uh, uh, Ivan Kolov, Morocco, the, the Briscoes, everybody. And baby faces were on one side, heels on the other side. And uh, <laughs> oh, I hear 10 minutes gone and I'm, I'm thinking and Terry's thinking, you know, we're both thinking kind of together. He goes, wow, this is 15 minute match. We better we better get ready to go home. You know, it's time to kick it in. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so something happened. I start to come back, bing, bang, boom. And the we're, we're actually having a decent little match. The crowd's into it. And it looks like the boys are really into it. And uh, we're, we're gassed and we're waiting for the bell. We didn't have anything left in our repertoire. There was nothing left. Gassed as could be. All of a sudden we hear 15 minutes gone, 15 minutes to go. They changed the time to 30 minutes. Oh, talk about a bad match. Oh, boring. Was that the first match on the card Let's that go. night? What's that? Was that the first match on the card that night? Yes. First match on the card. You know what's amazing about that? It's when the boys rib each other. You, you think it's the greatest thing ever. You go, how was it? Oh, it was horrible. It was awesome. And, but you forget that that was the first match tonight. That just kills the crowd. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, the first the match boys, <laughs> but the boys are amused, so they think it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't think Eddie would have laughed at that. <laughs> Eddie was behind it, I think. <laughs> no, I know who was behind it. Same guy that's behind that microphone that I'm looking at with the ceiling fan, and he's right here. <laughs> Yeah, I ran all those spot shows, John, and uh, so we get up there, you know, we, we we actually get there in pretty good time, so we're talking and what we got to do. <coughs> and so uh, the announcer, Jerry Prater, who wrote our programming, so he was smart to the business and everything anyway, so <coughs> we told him what we wanted to do. Just, just announce it like it's a 15-minute match, you know. Uh, don't say the time limit in the beginning, but you know, back in those days, we've had five-minute time Timely, every time five minutes were passed by, we'd feed it. And then when you get to 15, say 15 minutes, a 30-minute match, 15 minutes remaining. So so they, they went out with the impression they had just 15 minutes to kill. <laughs> and, oh. and, 
Brian, Brian's right, man. They did a hell of a job. You know, Terry's first match and Brian's fourth or fifth match and people, people with it. I think it was Chieflin or something like that. Right Chieflin, that's right, Chieflin. Sure was. For about 80 miles north of here. So, uh, but they, 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 you know, the people were starved for entertainment. They hadn't seen wrestling probably six months or so because one of those little spot shows you run every six months. But uh, they went out and they tore the house down in 15 minutes. And you kind of knew that uh, both of those kids knew what they were doing out there and uh, would, would make it, you know. And of course, Terry, Terry was so unbelievable then. I mean, he was what six, seven, uh, Brian, a clip tipping 300 pounds. And of course mm-hmm. he had a full head of hair at, at that time. Also, like we all did. But he was and, a destroyer. He had a mask on. Pardon? He, he had a mask on at the time. Oh yeah. That's what, I say. That's I what made remember. it even harder. Yeah. He had, uh-huh. he had a hood on because they didn't know what to do with him. So they made him like the destroyer. They called him the destroyer or something like that. I think it was he. He could tell you, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was the destroyer. And uh, I think you're you're correct on that. Was that Johnny Valentine was Booker, and he couldn't make the events, so I I did all the events for him. You know, I'd get it to get the walking right. papers and, and go to go to the arenas and and you know fill out the, fill out the dance card for everybody and everything. But uh, but yeah, he was a destroyer. Cause can you imagine you got a six foot five, a three hundred pound rookie, and you don't know what to do with him? <laughs> I mean, now you think back at it, it's kind of puzzling. Come on. Now. <laughs> the only thing that we had going for us is that we had been stretched so much and gone through all that stuff. We went just back to like an amateur match. You know, we're, we're, we don't have anything left. I mean, th- nobody could hit the ropes at about twenty minutes. <laughs> we couldn't even hit the ropes, and. Uh, you know, so we're doing, you know, arm bars, you know, uh, submission stuff. <laughs> you know, Brian, that says a lot about Hulk that, uh, you know, you'd mentioned all the guys that how tough it was training with Hero. And it was uh, you and Orndorf and Hulk. And those are the only three that stayed for the entire time that you trained. That says a lot about Hulk Hogan, that uh, he was one of those guys that was able to stay through it and make it through. Did, did you enjoy being around Hulk during those days? Absolutely. And in truth be told, you'll hear a lot of, uh, a lot of stories, um, uh, that, uh, are very entertaining. And, uh, Terry was a, Terry is a lot tougher than people give him credit for. A lot of people don't realize what he went through. And of course, to the best of my knowledge, the only one that he got in a shoot with was Vern Gagne, who, you know, was a collegiate. Uh, what, tell me a little about Vern Gagne's background, Gerald. He was a uh, he was a collegiate NCAA champion. Now he beat, yeah, he beat yeah. Dick Hutton. Dick Hutton, you know, Cutton, who was that's NCAA right. world champion. He was the only guy to beat Dick Hutton, or Dick Hutton would have been the first four time NCAA champion. But it was very controversial on my head on, on, the, on the call back then. If you went, if you want to draw in a collegiate match, John. It was left up to the referee to decide who the winner was, and uh, there was kind of a hometown referee type deal. And Hutton was uh, was Oklahoma State, and Oklahoma State was running away with the tournament. Minnesota was pushing for second or third or something like that, and I got down to the heavyweights, and uh, they'd went the overtime period. It was still one to one or whatever the score was, and the ref- decision came down to the referee and. They say it was a hometown reverend. He went over and raised Vern's hand, and and Vern won the national champ. But anyway, Vern was a tough sob. 
because Vern went on and made a USA uh, Greco team. So he, he, he wasn't no slouch. No, and Hogan wound up getting him in the front face lock, which, right. you know, isn't right. in the uh, amateur wrestling books, but <laughs> uh, at least it's not allowed in amateur wrestling. And uh, he had it cinched in I because I heard it from Brad Reagans, who, who probably is the most honest guy in the business, Brad Reagans. And uh, Brad broke John in. Yeah, Brad, Brad oh. trained me. Yeah, well, you know, what a what a guy full of character. Oh, one of the best guys on the planet. I love Brad. Oh, and you're right. Too. When you talk about honest, Brad doesn't embellish anything. He's Nothing. just a good man. You know, Brad would have been the gold medalist, the Greco-Roman, if uh, that was the year that Carter boycotted Carter the Olympics because of Russia. He was a world champion, but he would have, he'd have been a gold medalist. Right, easy. Yeah. So uh, anyway, back on the road. Uh, hey, wait, 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 quick, wait, quick. Uh, the story with uh, Hogan and uh, Vern, uh, oh, yeah. where did they get into uh, the shoot at? It was in uh, Minneapolis. Um, and I don't know what it was over, but apparently Vern got in Terry's face a little too much talking down to him. And Terry was their meal ticket there before Vince got him. and. Um, I don't know what kind of words. I don't remember. Uh, Brad just to told me that uh, was one of the worst mistake that Vern ever made because he, everybody says it was a draw, but he said Hogan was cinching down on that front face lock and Vern was gasping for air. That's that's what I know. That's the truth because Brad said it. Whether did, Terry, did Vern uh, leg dive him, try to take him down? Yes, yes that's exactly right. Vern went to leg dive him. And Terry just front face locked him on the leg dive there and choked him out, basically. Basically, yes. So Vern's the promoter, and he's he's bollocking uh, Hulk. And then his they, meal ticket, his meal ticket, yeah, his meal <laughs> ticket. And then he leg dives him, and Hogan sprawls on him in front face locks. And it sounds like yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And uh, you know the boys pulled him apart. And so Terry, uh, Terry, Terry was one of those guys. You could tell. I mean, even when Matsuda, you know, Matsuda was was the man down there without a doubt. And Terry, I mean, uh, we had a group of guys that come on. I got Gorndolf and Simmons and uh, Blair and all those guys. They, I mean, they they went out and they competed with with Matsuda. So they had their training pretty pretty well down when when they left here. Oh yeah, Brian, were you there when uh, Hogan got his leg broke? Yeah, he came. Well. Um, he came. Um, I don't think you were there when I, I wasn't there. I was in Watson's territory. Yeah. Um, oh, I there. You were there, Gerald. But it was. It actually happened at Hero's Gym, not in the Sportatorium, right, Gerald? Right. Yeah. Right. And uh, I mean, Matsuda. Several times, I thought I had Matsuda. Finally, had him down. All of a sudden, ah, my ankle. Ah, the ankle picked me somehow with his feet. Ah, you know, I'd start screaming. It was back. To square one, you know, he's back on top. Every time you think you had him, he had some kind of way out. You know, just unlike Carl Gotch, who actually would come, okay, get you, you lay down, and I'm going to show you what a uh, front face lock feels like, or a double wrist lock, or whatever hook it happened to be. He, you'd have to set him up. He'd set you up for it and put it on you, and then you'd scream and feel it. But Matsuda would actually go in and wrestle you until. You either tapped yeah, out you or you been tapped out. <laughs> yeah, which was nine. Brian, you left You left here, uh, and uh, Killer Carl Cox, and uh, and you ran into Killer Carl and, and Dick Murdoch. Murdoch, uh, you know, of course, a hero of all of us, sir. But 
we sent you out to Oklahoma City and you went to Kansas City and Oklahoma City. Then then you ended up at, down with uh, Fritz and the boys down there. But uh, take us out with uh, Killer Carl and Murdoch and all those out in Oklahoma those days there. Oh, gosh. Classics. Um, one of them had, a, it was uh, Murdoch. He had a big bodied, uh, no, it was Cox. I'm sorry. He had a big bodied car and uh, the bench seat in the back. And um, Orndorff and myself would ride with them because they're healing babyface too. And Watts didn't like this. And he, uh, Grizzly Smith would try to bust you and catch you. But he wouldn't say, they wouldn't say anything to Cox and Murdoch because they were the main event everywhere. But to nobody's like Orndorff and I at the time, um, you know, we weren't supposed to ride together, but Cox and Murdoch said, no, you guys ride with us. We're going to teach you uh, the ropes, da, da, da. So we said, fine. So we get in the back seat, and this is where the Atlas term, when Atlas and Orndorff got in the shoot <laughs> from Wheeling, West Virginia. But uh, Murdoch, um, they'd take turns driving this old Bonneville, and Murdoch was in the driver's seat, even though it was Cox, Cox's car, and he pulled the bench seat all the way back. We had three mi 300 miles each way to go, and Orndorff, are riding, Orndorff and I are riding in the back seat with our knees sideways together, but we couldn't say anything. I mean, it was terrible. And they, I remember them pulling into a 7-Eleven or a circle convenience store, and they both get out, heel, baby face, highly kayfabe. Every, you know, we're in the real kayfabe era, and they, they're walking in the store. The windows are down. Um, Orndorff and I are... Uh, trying to get our legs from being numb. And uh, this kid on a bicycle looks at uh, Cox and Murdoch. He goes, hey, Carl Cox, Dick Murdoch, I thought you guys hated each other. And uh, uh, Cox, who's kind of intellectual when he wants to be, uh, says to the two kids, we're I mean, to the kid, though, there's another kid behind him says, we're just trying to, we're trying to patch things up, kid. We're, we're working on it right now. He says, oh, good. I love you both like that. But, you know, they just have classic lines for the kids or whoever saw them and said, hey, why are you guys riding together? Uh, they were absolutely hilarious. Murdoch could, when he'd drive, he'd take beer bottles and hit the stop signs or the speed limit signs at uh, 70 miles an hour. I mean, unbelievable how accurate he was with a beer bottle. Dick, Dick could do that. I rode with Dick in Texas. And I used to have to hand Dick Coors Lights. Right. And I, he'd throw them out the window every once in a while. I couldn't figure out why. It was just me and him. And I realized if I didn't hand it to him with the mouth pointing toward his mouth, Dick would just take it and throw it out the window. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I finally figured it out. Over it. But Dick would hit the, the, the signs from the driver's side. He was that good. He, he could hit them right-handed, left-handed. He was, he was very talented with beer bottles. Oh, yes, he was. Um, just two great guys. I mean, they'd have some classic matches. I mean, people would be standing, New Orleans would be sold. Everything was great houses, great houses. And those guys just had tremendous psychology because, you know, neither one of them are, uh, you know, uh, flyers or anything like that. It was more punching, balling, but the psychology that they had was just phenomenal to watch their psychology, their, their selling, how they went from one, move to i mean they, they just knew how to make people eat from their hands it was unbelievable to watch that jim Cornette always said that dick murdoch is to wrestling what a trick shot artist is to pull he, <laughs> he gets there but he gets there in the damnedest way you've ever 
And I've always thought that's the greatest analogy ever of Murdoch. Because Murdoch, yeah, he was so talented that he would he would turn babyface, he'd turn heel, he'd turn baby in the same match just because he could do it. Yeah, and he'd look up. Uh, Killer Carl Cox would look up and talk to somebody upstairs. Alex. I mean, he had everybody Alex. convinced he was Alex. 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 Was Alex. Alex. I mean, even Orndorff and I thought he was nuts like that for a while, even though we were kind of smart to the business. Because he was nuts, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, Brian, Brian, uh, you, 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 you were there, but I heard a story, and I never heard it directly from you, which surprises me because we've been together so many times. But when you went down to uh, to uh, Dallas, that was a completely different world in that wild uh uh, people you uh, that you were hanging with, you you actually lived with what uh, David Von Eric, right? For a year and a half. Is he the one that you had to field with that uh, you had to irrigate it in a creative way? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that, El Chapo. Ah, well, <laughs> you no. can't hide anything here, Brian. No, no, no. <laughs> we weren't making a fortune at the time, but. I got to say this, Fritz put a $100 bill in my paycheck every single week. He'd put a $100 bill in my paycheck, God bless him, uh, to watch out for his kids. So <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure I was the best mentor. He just started doing that and he said, hey, watch out for, for the boys, will you? I said, yes, sir, of course, of course. Anyway, uh, Kevin had a house and I see Kevin once in a while in Hawaii. Kevin had a great guy. Kevin had a house and Carrie had a house and uh, David had a house. And Carrie's house <laughs> was next to this little open field that was perfect place for cultivating a little hemp. And uh, I saw that. I don't remember whose idea it was, but I knew a I had been raised on a farm in Arkansas through the summers of my life. And uh, my grandfather taught me a lot about horticulture, not about hemp, but he had a half acre garden and pigs and cattle and horses and all that stuff. It's great, great life. But anyway, I took it upon myself to, uh, we rented a tiller. Oh, then didn't rent it. They already had the tiller. Got the tiller, tilled up the soil, got some corn, planted corn on the outside, the seeds in the middle, had a hose. We put three hoses together. The bad thing was that they were yellow and uh, ran it down so we could uh, water them when they needed to be watered and had a little book. I was reading out of the book, you know, what to do next. These hemp plants. You're growing corn? Uh, well, we grew corn on the outside for camouflage and hemp on the inside to supplement our hemp. Hopefully, hemp. hopefully to supplement our pain. And uh, these hemp plants were bigger than we were. We couldn't put our arms around them. I'm sure it was some kind of Mexican strain. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we told Kevin, do not water those plants. Whatever you do, don't water them. Don't do anything. But what does he do? He leaves the hose running to the field. And this is in October. It's time. getting. They're like a week away from harvesting. And Al Madrill is the one that gave me the idea because he said uh, that uh, if, if I had a chance, if I could grow a couple plants, you know, he'd take them off my hands. Give me some money. I said, okay. So wait a minute. So Al, Al was gonna, I was gonna sell them, or I was just gonna buy them for himself. I can't tell you that, John. My my hunch is that he was probably gonna sell them, but who knows? 
So rather than a couple, we must have had about 50, 50 plants that were like Christmas trees. And um, <laughs> Kevin leaves the hose running down and they got a, uh, they have a guy that's uh, the handyman around there that takes care of uh, Fritz's property and Fritz and Doris's property. And he drives up in a pickup truck and sees this hose running from the house, yellow hose, very easy to see, from the house to our cornfield. And uh, <laughs> he goes down there and apparently he picks a, a stock off and takes it to Fritz. Fritz goes to the library. He's got a book. I'm sitting with David. We're having a good time in his house, just laughing. All of a sudden the phone rings. Ring. Hey, dad, what's happening? I don't know. Uh, not me. I don't know. Oh, okay. I'll be right there. He goes, shit, something happened. I don't know what it is. I got to go to my dad's, but I think he found the marijuana. I said, what? So he goes to his dad's. Dad's got the book out. Uh, David says, I don't know what this is. We were going to grow. We were growing some corn. I have no idea how the birds must have did this or that. You know, he's got every excuse. So, so he was growing corn. He doesn't know how the 50 plants of pot just showed up. <laughs> yeah, bird, bird shed it there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Big bird. Hey, hey, 50 perfectly in row plants of pot showed up. Be pollinating it, John. <laughs> oh, gosh. And so anyway, uh, afterwards, long story short, Fritz uh, sends Brock to the uh, cornfield there with uh, the bush hog, and there was nothing left. And you know, we we had there goes your supplement. Yeah, that went our there went our supplemental income. So it was probably a good thing. Uh, <laughs> looking back, how long have you been growing it? Oh, uh, I would say five months. <laughs> five months. I mean, you could do it inside and in 90 days, but, uh, you know, outside your five, six months. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable tablets and at a fraction of the cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at bluechew.com, consult with one of their licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. The best part, it's all done online. So no visits to the doctor's office, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the USA, prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. With Blue Chew, men everywhere are excited to see the postman because when your package has arrived, your package has arrived. They'll always say first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? It's time to get off the couch, back to work. If your tool needs an upgrade, head to bluechew.com. Guys, there's nothing sexier than confidence. And Blue Chew can give you the confidence where it counts. How did you end up living with David? How did that relationship happen that you end up moving in with the Von Erichs when you came down to work for him? I was the assistant booker and uh, I was, uh, of course, I was married to Mike McGurk, Leroy's daughter. And Leroy and uh, Bill Watts split up. So I'm uh, always like the assistant booker to Art Nelson, uh, Skandor Akbar, 
whoever the regular booker was, I was always helping them because Leroy always wanted me to keep an eye on it without, you know, so I could stooge to Leroy if something was wrong. Um, this was actually our family livelihood. It was like Gerald owning Florida. It was our territory. And uh, so uh, <laughs> it, it was, uh, we'd bring the Von Erics up once in a while, which really helped our Southern towns in Oklahoma. And I got to know David and I had the whole family really good. And um, after uh, Mike and I were getting a divorce, realized we got married too early and the jealousy I couldn't handle. And um, a lot of stories there. Golly, I remember Jimmy Garvin and his, oh, so many stories. But uh, um, I I go to leave. There's no money in the bank account. It got drained. Um, all the money I had went into a, a house in Tulsa. I just decided to leave with just my clothes and five hundred dollars and my great name. And uh, I, I'm the you know because David had. Uh, knew what was going on that we became pretty good friends really good friends and uh, he told me to come live with him so you know there's another story in there where Leroy almost shot me before I went down to uh, the Von Erics and David said he was going to have a surprise for me when he got there and boy did he so uh, about that shooting because we always I've always heard about him one night he carried a gun down to shoot Ted DiBiase one time and he, yeah of course yeah, we, missed Leroy <laughs> was <laughs> anyway, I, man should be carrying a gun around. <laughs> yeah. I, I want well, what happened was I was wrestling Ron Starr that night for the World Junior Heavyweight Championship and uh good house, but I know I'm leaving, I'm a little bit sad. And uh I know that Doug Summers has been riding with Mike. We're not divorced yet. So that didn't really sit good with me, especially since I took such good care of him, you know, and said, hey, ride, you don't have to pay any transits, ride with those. And he's a heel. But uh, anyway, uh, I uh, found out about this stuff. And after the match, I walk into Leroy's office and there's Doug Summers sitting in Leroy's chair. Whoa, that pissed me off. He stood up right away. I said something to him. He said something back make a long story short we have an altercation Leroy's pictures are down only wiki wiki and uh Skandor and other people wind up pulling me off of Doug Summers he they took him to the hospital and that's all I knew so I gotta go I'm going to David's that night uh get it oh I got my boat too my 17 foot caravel inboard outboard boat and Oh, did we have a good time on with that in Lake Dallas? But uh, um, uh, I decide I got I've got to say goodbye. I got to say goodbye. So I go to the house and uh, I knock on the door. Leroy said, "Who is it?" I said, "It's Brian. I just want to say goodbye to Michael." And he says, uh, "Brian, you son of a bitch!" He's he. Uh, slams the uh the door against the thing and he's looking at me i know he can't see he's blind you know he, he he's he's literally blind and uh he goes you get out of here next time i see you i'm gonna shoot you i can't believe you broke all my trophies somebody stooged to him and said all his office was a mess and all the all the stuff that he earned that was on the walls was broken and all that it wasn't all broken but you know some of it fell down 
So I, I leave because he's serious about shooting me. And I go back to my car and I'm thinking to myself, God, what do I do? So I sit in my car for almost an hour and I decide, I'm thinking Mike's going to come out. Her car's right there. So all I want to do is say goodbye. Love you. Sorry, it didn't work out. And uh, nothing's happening. And uh, I go to the back window and I look and I see Leroy walking like this. And I go to the next window down and I look into the living room and there's Mike. There's like a mummy on the chair, on the couch. A mummy's laying down, all wrapped up in the plaster of Paris. All you can see is the eyes and the mouth. And uh, she's feeding him soup. I said, that's freaking Doug Summers. I can't believe it. I go back to my car and I'm really, really upset, man. Got tears in my heart, tears in my eyes. Run back. I knock on the door. Who is it? It's Brian. Just let me say goodbye to Mike. <laughs> the door slams open. The gun pops up. I went, oh, my gosh. And just as I, it's like an indentation. And I, as quick as I could, move behind that brick wall. And bam, 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 bam. His, his, he really wanted to shoot me. And his Lincoln's parked right there. And I could see the bullets hitting right by his tire right there because I'm pinned up against the wall, staring at his car, listening to this gun, praying that he doesn't come outside. And uh, a revelation from God comes and he can see or something because he's seriously going to kill me. And uh, I, I just left after that and cried halfway to Dallas. Never looked back. Had a great time with Devon Eriks. Gosh. But that was a heart-wrenching time in my life. Very, very heart-wrenching. So the, the story of the gun and Ted DiBiase, was that true too, that he uh, took a gun after Ted as well? I do not know that. Ted just warned me before I got with Mike. He said, that's a dysfunctional family, brother. You, you may not like that. And, uh, you know, love is blind. <laughs> it doesn't seem very safe to have a blind, angry man with a gun. <laughs> Who has oh. a history of shooting his daughter's boyfriends? Oh, <laughs> that's man. right. Hey, it's, like the Kyler, it's like the Kyler Murray um, commercial where he's throwing stuff with a virtual uh, headset on. <laughs> One of the good things Leroy did is he gave me his Halliburton as a present, and inside of it were the uh, notes from the NWA conventions that they'd have in Vegas, or at least they had this one in Vegas. And it said who who all was there from Vince McMahon Sr. Uh, uh, the list goes down, Vern Gagne. Um, and of course, Jim Barnett and um, several of the guys. And they're going to, they decide who's, who they want as the world champion there. Very interesting stuff. Um, I should have put that in my book. Um, Truth Be Told, which is available on Amazon right now. <laughs> volume, volume two. Yeah, it's like if you read the book, every every chapter could be a book. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it took me almost two years to write that. Brad, Brad, what, what, what year were you in Dallas? I was in Dallas, uh, I would say 81 and 82. Right, right when the popularity started surging, but, but before the Freebirds came in, right? Yes, 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 yes. I'll tell you what. Oh, you mentioned the Freebirds, John. Oh, JBL. Golly. <laughs> I have my brother Kevin come up to Atlanta, and we're going to go uh, to uh, Macon. And uh, 
Terry Gordy or Michael Hayes have this van. And uh, a lot of times they'd sleep in the van and save the money for a hotel. And uh, Terry's driving the van. There's all, there's a cooler in the back. A lot of the guys like to drink before the match instead of after the match, both before and after. So we're on the way down. They want no, never. <laughs> no, never, never. So you can't do that stuff now. But I'm in the back, and my my brother asked, what does kayfabe mean? I said, uh, uh, well, um, and Hayes pops up. He goes, it, it means to have sex. He goes, oh, you guys have a lot of sex. And uh, okay, so he's very inquisitive. You know, he's five years younger than me. And uh, <laughs> he saw a lot of stuff he shouldn't have seen. But we pull over and it's cloudy outside. Michael Hayes, he can pee farther than anybody that I've ever seen in my life. So I'm on one side of the van, they're on the other side of the van. And all of a sudden I said, shit, it's starting to rain. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey guys, I'm getting in the van. It's starting to rain. And I hear him bust out laughing. And I look over and Hayes has got his Peter out of his pants and he's peeing over the truck onto my head and onto Kevin's head, my little brother. <laughs> so we jump in the, back into the uh, van and uh, the uh, the beers are ice cold. I'm I'm doing them well. I got the empty one and I filled it up with pee right then after he did that and I stick it in the ice. So we're going down the road, down the road and uh, they're getting pretty toasty and Hayes goes, uh, give me a beer. I said, sure. So I pretend like I flicked the top and I hand him the can filled with urine. Cold, now it's cold. And I, I hand him the can and Gordy goes, give me a beer. So I grab another beer and Hayes hands the pee beer to Gordy, who's driving. Oh, no. <laughs> I go, oh, my gosh. I didn't know what to do. And my brother looks at me with big eyes like this, you know, kind of. I didn't know what to do. So they slam their thing, their beer together. Go, come on, come by or whatever. Gordy goes. Oh, he turns towards Hayes and blows the pee right in his face. You son of a bitch. You know, he's calling him all kinds of names. He thought Michael set him up to do that. So, oh gosh, that's awesome. It was terrible. You know what's amazing is Michael Hayes is known for being the long distance peer. I don't know how you figure out that that's your talent. But <laughs> he's a free bird. So, free birds yeah. do those kind of things. Yeah. Did you hear the story? This is a true story. When uh, they uh, drop Buddy, uh, uh, Buddy, uh, Buddy Roberts, Buddy Roberts off, and. Uh, he left his Halliburton. They knew the code and said he, they, uh, he'd meet at the, uh, in New Orleans at St. Bernard. And we had like a three day little vacation and they dropped him off and found a possum on the side of the road, put the possum in the bag, set the bag out for two days in the hot sun. Just throw the bag uh, in the middle of the uh, locker room floor all of a sudden, Buddy Roberts comes in, Stagger and Grizzly Smith's in there. All the guys are in there. Uh, and uh, Buddy, uh, everybody's uh, kind of glad to see Buddy. You know, he's he's he was a great guy. And everybody's kind of waiting now. And Buddy decides, okay, it's time to get dressed. He opens that Halliburton. Maggots are in that thing. Grizzly looks down and woof throw up spews out of grizzly's mouth puke 
puke. He starts puking everywhere. Everybody runs out of the locker room. It's, it's terrible, the stench. Well, Buddy Roberts worked in those same tights that that possum was laying on that night. I mean, he was gross, nasty. I couldn't believe it. But anyway, uh, the free birds were relentless. Yeah, they were the free birds. They were one of a kind. There was nothing like the free birds. No, they were amazing. Brian, you have a tape uh, you held up earlier. And, and you, want, you got a curiosity. Up. You said you had this tape there. Well, Gerald made this cassette over 40 years ago with uh, uh, Hank Jr., Willie Nelson, uh, Jimmy, Jeff Walker. Um, Jerry. Jerry Jeff Walker. And uh, I think Jack was the first one. No, it wasn't Jack. Jimmy Garvin, I think, stole it first. Gerald said, you got to get that tape back from Garvin. I said, okay. So when he was driving, I stole the tape. Then Kern stole it from me. Then Jack stole it from Kern. Gerald got it back. And anyway, after all this, you know, this was the best tape. Every one of us know, knows the words to this tape. I mean, we know all the words to these songs. We'd go down, you know, singing the songs together, drinking beer, having a good time. You can't get away with that nowadays. But, you know, we were, uh, something could have happened. Thank God it didn't. But uh, <laughs> reminds me of another story. But Brian, uh, you really, Brian, you really enjoyed that tape, in other words, right? I I can enjoy it right now. It plays well, like you know Brian. What? I, I went through the trouble of making JBL a tape. He was going to the Texas Oklahoma game one time. You know, I have no horse in that race at all. And I said, I tell you, <laughs> you know, it's a long drive, long boring drive. Driving anywhere in Texas is boring. So I'll make <laughs> it is nice not. CD. I'll make you a nice little CD. And you and your buddy, who happened to be an ex Oklahoma State football player, he was riding with. I said, you guys can enjoy your trip to uh, to uh, to Dallas, Fort Worth, uh, to the Cotton Bowl to watch uh, Oklahoma beat Texas. So he said, great. So I, I I went. I worked all day long. I made the greatest CD probably I ever produced. Next to that one you you have in your hands, I sent it to John out of the kindness of my heart. He said he listened to one song and threw the damn thing out the window. Oh, right out the window. On 175 between Athens and Dallas, I threw that son of a bitch out the window. I you don't like country music? Every song was about Oklahoma. Like, I'm proud, <laughs> to, be an, I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee, Oklahoma, uh, the beautiful. It's like uh, every song. Oh, and my God, buddy, my buddy, who's like 350 pounds, former wrestler, football player at Oklahoma State, he's singing to every song. He think, he said, this is the greatest song. This is the greatest song ever. <laughs> I love Gerald Briscoe. I hit eject and threw that thing right out the window. Let's take a time out here. And while we normally have a lot of fun on this show, this is a pretty serious topic. Life insurance, specifically Goliath life insurance. Let me give you a pro tip. We're all going to die. So before you get a visit from the undertaker, think just for a second about what would happen if your family stopped having your income tomorrow with life insurance from goliathlife.com. What we're really talking about is protecting what you've worked so hard to provide for both you and more importantly, your family. You see, life insurance isn't about you. It's about those who matter the most to you. Sure. You do a great job taking care of them now, but who would do that if something awful happened to you? I just lost two friends in the last year and a half, one forty-two with two kids. The other 46 who left behind a wife and three kids. Thank God they had insurance. 
And Hey, I hear you. Nobody wants to think or talk about life insurance. Think about this. You might not get in a car accident, but you have auto insurance. You might not get sick, but you have health insurance. So we'll protect our car and we'll even protect ourselves from like crazy medical bills. But will we protect our family? That's what life insurance means to me. Peace of mind. Goliathlife.com streamlines the life insurance purchase process by allowing you to get quotes from more than 20 carriers all at the same time and at the same place. Goliathlife.com. You'll do a fast and easy application and have multiple quotes within minutes. And oh, by the way, Goliathlife.com has solutions for every budget. And maybe best of all, you pick your terms and payments at Goliathlife.com. Once you pick your price, you can start the online application immediately. And check this out. You can even schedule the medical exam to happen in your home. You don't even have to leave the house to do this. And yes, I have done this. I sent someone to my office. It was fast. It was easy. And it was unlike anything I expected. I got to skip the phone calls, the paperwork and the crazy invasive conversations, and even the multiple visits to the doctor's office that we all hate so much. Goliathlife.com makes buying life insurance simple. Goliathlife.com promises no hidden fees, no upsell, no hassle, hell, not even a phone call. Goliathlife.com is life insurance in your hands on your time. Get multiple quick quotes right now from the comfort of your own home and begin your application in a few easy clicks right now at goliathlife.com. Oh, that's great. That's great. They go through great uh, lengths to, for a rib. I mean, some, uh, it just, I recall, um, Gerald, I'm sure you remember this. It was uh, Jack and Gerald. Uh, we're in a, we're in the bill blast. This is kind of during the tape stealing days. Um, and, uh, uh, we're in the bill blast, uh, Jack's, uh, Lincoln. Oh gosh. Uh, we're coming back from somewhere North of Chiefland, I believe, but we get close to Chiefland and, um, all of a sudden the lights come on. Now, Don Morocco's, uh, sitting to the left of me, uh, Gerald's in the front passenger seat and I'm in the other passenger seat behind Gerald and the car's a little smoky. So Morocco hands me this bag of Maui Wowie. And he goes, now Jack's pulling over to the side of the road. He goes, dump this out, dump this out. I, I said, oh, I, 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 okay. So he hands it to me. I'm scared now. I, I know we're going to jail. So Gerald opens his door so I can dump this stuff out. I dump it out. And all of a sudden Jack opens the car and there's beer cans everywhere. I try to get some of the beer cans out. Oh God, I know we're going to jail. Uh, and uh, Jack opens the door and the cop goes, the highway patrol guy goes, Jack Briscoe, my hero. I can't believe it's you. I pulled over Pat Patterson about 10 minutes ago and he told me that you'd be coming in your car and everything. You can't miss this blue and uh, yellow kind of orange, gold, golden blue, I guess it was, right, Gerald? And uh, the Bill Blast model that he had. And uh, so the smoke hits the trooper. He's unfazed by the smoke hitting him in the face, unfazed by the alcohol coming from Jack's breath. And he just wants an autograph. That's all he wants, an autograph and a handshake. And I couldn't believe this. And we're listening. And wow, this is my lucky day. I can't believe that we're not going to jail. And Morocco, I see him and he's pissed. And I don't understand why he's so pissed. You know, but maybe it's but anyway, uh, after the highway patrol guy says, drive safe now, guys, drive real safe. He 
goes back thanking Jack, just thanking him to no end. And here he could have taken us all to jail. And Morocco goes, God damn, neighbor, get my get out there and I want you to get my pot right now, wherever you dumped it. And so <laughs> I'm out there getting the weeds, you know, trying to find this uh, stuff. It was uh, so many experiences. I mean, we lost Jack's tire one time. Everybody was, I wound up on uh, uh, Jack's couch naked and uh, (laughs) Jack forgot his spare on the side of the road. And I don't know how I got on his couch naked, but his wife comes in to the living room. I got a little blanket and he's got these big JBL speakers, uh, I guess your your speakers. That's right. Down. And uh, they're blasted. He turns the music loud. And, oh gosh! I mean, everything was a rib. Everything they did was trying to have a laugh at my expense, and <laughs> and it never stops. You know, I, last time I saw Jack, I put my arm around him. I was so happy to see him, and he hip tosses me. <laughs> Just, hey, well, the, one, one, I saw I saw a story you tell. I, was, I forget where it was. I was watching some interviews today. The time that you pissed on Dusty. Oh, my God. After the Andre and uh, Dusty story in the car. That, to me, that's, that is awesome. <laughs> Whoa. You know, there's there. these are good stories. I mean, there's some better ones, and truth be told, available on Amazon. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, this is what happened. So. <laughs> I'm the bartender. I'm in my old Lincoln bar, uh, Lincoln Continental. Actually, Dusty's the bartender. And the heater doesn't work. We're in Mississippi and uh, in Jackson, and we've got to drive 220 miles north to Greenville. It's uh, the middle of winter, but uh, uh, Andre comes out in a Waiavea, and Dusty's got a like a T-shirt, uh, a West Texas State T-shirt. Uh, he comes out to my car and. The boss says hello. You know, uh, it was so much fun because Andre and I would always ride. There's a lot of stories with him, but uh, uh, and of course the relationship with Dusty. So the three of us are about to embark on a great journey, and I'm just grateful to be there. You know, my first territory here, away from home. And uh, Dusty says, "Hey, people," he says, "Listen, the boss likes to drink, and I need you to go to the liquor stall." And he goes, "It's cold out." And uh, uh, he said, uh, I need you to get two coolers. I said, two coolers. He said, yeah, we got to pee in one cooler. We'll put the alcohol in other coolers. So get a small cooler, he's explaining. He goes, get Andre two bottles of Crown Royal. Get him a, a case of Budweiser, I think he was drinking. Then get me a case of Lone Star. And you're driving. You could have a six-pack, any kind you want. Hands me a few hundred dollars. So I get go to the liquor store, get all this stuff, bring it back, got the ice, the beer done. Got to entertain these guys, but I'm scared to death now um, because my heater won't work, but the defroster works so I could pretend anyway, and I'm just kind of working and see what happens. Well, at that time, it was, uh, you know, one o'clock, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, the sun's shining, it's about 40 degrees in Jackson, it was nice. So we take off and everybody's drinking on the way there. and Dusty starts going, God, dang, it's getting cold in here. Beepa. And the boss is just, oh, ho, ho. he's already got a bottle of Crom down before we get to Greenville. And Dusty said, uh, Beepa, you're going to be on uh, before us. I want you to come out here and turn the heater on. There's no shower in here, no cold, no hot water. He already knew that. And uh, we're going to we're going to come out here and uh, uh, into the car when it's heated up. 
get ready to go. So I said, okay, I'll be ready. So I was in there, just put my sweats back on over my tights and stuff. They got their gimmicks back on. It's coldish. Oh, so cold. They get in the car and I got, turn that heater on, turn that heater on. So I got the defroster off. They get the antifreeze and Dusty's bartending. We're going down the road, peeing in the cooler. I had to pee. They had, he had a McDonald's cup that he brought to him. Big McDonald's cup. So that cooler, that little cooler is getting really full of urine. And uh, it's Dusty's riding the straddle because he's listening to this, to the, he's talking to the giant, the giant's talking to him. And I'm just like a fly on the wall. So happy to be there. I'm listening to these stories and somebody said something funny and the boss, all of a sudden he goes forward and uh, almost touches the, may have touched the dashboard in my Lincoln Continental, my 72 powder blue Lincoln Continental. And uh, it's got about 270,000 miles on it at this time. And uh, he moves forward and he moves backwards laughing so hard the seat breaks, hits Dusty and squashes the cooler. So the urine goes all over Dusty. Dusty starts cutting a promo on me as if I did it. He goes, God damn people, you're black bald. You never wrestle again. You embarrass me in front of Andre the Giant. We're right here, the two greatest sports attractions in the world of wrestling. And you pee on me. God damn you people. It's going on and on cutting this promo. So finally he loosens up a little and the boss was so entertained. He found so much relief, I guess, in the boss's humor and Andre's hu- and Andre being so, so happy. So we get back and Andre's still laughing at Dusty's expense and I'm feeling like a whipped puppy dog. And uh, so we're together for a week and we got to go to New Orleans pretty soon. So uh, we got a day off and we go to Felix's Oyster Place and uh, I forget who didn't want to eat uh, oysters, they had shrimp, drinking beer. And, Finally, it's time to leave. And in New Orleans, there was a place right down from Felix's where this uh, mannequin went in and out of this top of this store. I don't know if you you remember that uh, on Bourbon Street, but I guess it was a booby bar. And uh, they want to go. The boss wants to go there. You got to go wherever Andre wants to go. And uh, there's a little place I could see. On the way there, I said, I, I got to pee, guys. I got to pee. He said, no, no, you're going to pee right there. It's just right up here. I said, I okay. So I follow uh, uh, Dusty and Andre. And there's a, a flight of uh, the stairs go like this. Then there's a platform. And the other set of stairs go off to the right, but you really can't see anything. And we're walking up the stairs. And all of a sudden, the lights go out. It's pitch black. I mean, you couldn't see anything. Andre goes, hold on to your poke. So I feel for my wallet. I got my wallet okay. And, you know, Dusty's there. And uh, it's, uh, I got to pee. And so I could kind of feel, what are you doing? I, nothing, 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 nothing. Go. There's, there's like a plastic palm tree in the corner of that platform. So I turn around, I start peeing in that palm tree. I didn't say nothing to them because I, I didn't want anybody to say anything. Just as I get my zipper up, the lights come back on. And uh, I look. And Dusty always wore his jeans inside of his cowboy boots. And I wasn't peeing on the palm tree. I was peeing on Dusty's leg and it filled his boot up with urine. And he's shaking his leg. He's going, God damn, God damn. People, you didn't piss on me, did you? Oh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I hope not. And uh, I peed in the palm tree. And he pulls his boot and 
thumps it out and Andre is, uh, he's laughing so hard again. And Dusty cuts another promo on me and tells me to get out of the building. I, it's, it was terrible. I mean, I didn't mean to do that, but uh, you know, it was, it was actually really funny watching the American dream with it. it looked like he wet his pants and urine was all in his boot. And, you know, to see Andre laugh like that was priceless. <laughs> so you you get the dream twice. You got the American dream twice. Twice in one week. And and when he wrote in his book, he said Andre peed on him. And that's not true. <laughs> you know, Andre didn't do it. So uh, you know that if you read the Dusty Rhodes autobiography. Um Wait, you, you don't have a book, do you? I didn't want to do a job for me. Oh, yeah, I do have a book. By the way, thank you for asking, JBL. It's called Truth Be Told. It's on Amazon. It's got 100% positive reviews, five stars, as a matter of fact. Um, it, it's got so many stories that I'm not going to tell on here because you got to read about it. So if you liked any of these stories, go to Amazon and get Truth Be Told. Yeah, thank you. I, one thing I, I, I want to ask you was uh, you were with Beefcake when he had the parasailing accident, right? Yes, absolutely. We're at a guy named Mike Hannis's house. And this guy, Ed Barbara, who helped, uh, who I introduced to Herb Abrams, who got the funding for the UWF, which is a very interesting story that's inside of Truth Be Told. Um, is that in your book? Uh, the parasailing accident. Uh, yeah, I believe that story is. Um, and, and, and where do you get your book? Amazon. Amazon. What's the name of it again? Yeah, what's the name of it again? Oh, it's Truth Be Told with two B with two E's. Truth. Uh, this isn't the book. This is the manuscript. Truth Be Told, um, and uh, it's a uh, very interesting. So <laughs> we're at uh, Mike Hannis's house. He's just a friend of all the wrestlers, and he's got a boat, ski shop, and a nice lake. And we're parasailing. When you parasail, uh, this. Uh, guy, um, I'm trying to think of his name right now. He owned a hardware store. Him and I were the ones that uh, would hold the parasail out. And uh, various people were riding and Beefcake was pretty far out in the water because the, uh, the uh, ski rope is quite a distance. And he has to make sure that the person gets up. And he has to also tell them, uh, tell Mike, you know, when the person that's getting ready to go up in the air is ready. So he knows that he's supposed to turn outside just in case somebody doesn't get altitude. So it just so happens we've done this now, like 10 people had taken rides and Ed Barbara's girlfriend's next. Well, we get ready. Uh, okay, we tell Beefcake, okay, she's ready. And um, Hannes takes off. He's got a high powered ski boat. She runs down the beach, but she's just toward the beach. Normally people are getting altitude after four steps, five steps, boom, straight up. Well, Beaver decides to turn into the rope instead of away from the rope this particular time. And this particular time, she, Tracy was her name. Tracy gets no altitude or just very little altitude. And she sees she's gonna hit Beefcake. And this is right in front of our eyes. And she lifts her knees up to go over the top of him. And instead, she hits him right in the face and he drops like an anchor. So this freaked me out. And I run in the water and I grab beef and I pull him up to the shore. And I, I'm about to get him to the shore. The redhead kid comes and he 
uh, he starts pulling. I said, pull beefcake because he's like pulling me. I said, help me with beefcake, uh, with beaver. And so I get him to the shore there. We get him to the, the end of the shore and he's sitting down and I hit his back, you know, to get the water out of him because he's kind of going, oh, and gurgling. Uh, and I said, beaver, open your mouth, open your mouth. And he goes, yeah, yeah. So it sounded like it is, it is. So I pull his lip down and his whole top of his teeth, all of this was broken. And the top of his teeth are sitting on the bottom of his teeth. He had, he has had to go, I think he had 16 plates, 32 screws. His whole face had to be reconstructed after that. And he almost died, of course, right there. He almost drowned. It was a, it was a terrible, tragic situation. Um, very brutal. Sorry to put it like that, but it was, it was uh, not fun. Wow, unbelievable! And just an absolute freak accident, right? Freak, total freak a accident, JBL. I mean, it was, uh, and like I said, you know, all day everybody's waiting, getting altitude, flying all around the lake. It was beautiful. I didn't want to try it. You know, I was, to be honest with you, I was afraid to do it. So, uh, you know, because if something happened, you were going to go either into trees or a house around there, if the rope broke or or anything. So I just didn't want to do it. And after I saw that, there, there was no way that I was going to do that. I mean, everything shut down after that anyway. I mean, everybody was freaked out. Ambulance came. Oh, it was it was horrible. It took uh, B for a long time to heal from that. When uh, you left WWF uh, and Jim Jim Brazel stayed, uh, then later you know you went up to UWF. You know much later, uh, did you ever think about going back, or was there ever talk about going back, or did you consider it? Yeah, in Salisbury, Maryland, um, I gave Vince my notice because the writing was on the wall. You know that um, you know we were promised the belts three times. George Scott would come in and say the 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 money's in the chase, Ryan and Jimmy, the money's in the chase. We're going to give you the belts. Vince, I said, Vince, I said, I had a meeting with Vince. I said, um, Vince, you know, when, when we're busting our butts every night, cause he had nothing but praise about our matches. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I said, if we don't win the belts, I said, the people aren't going to believe in us. We give us the belts for a couple, a month, two months, whatever, and let us drop them to whoever you want. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We'll do it. Uh, we're going to do it uh, next month, uh, this date, but it never happened. And so I was getting tired of it and uh, the long trips. And, um, you know, I had always had a little bit of entrepreneurship in my mind. And I gave Vince my notice. Uh, unfortunately, Jimmy wasn't in the financial position to, to leave. And I started Gold's Gyms uh, and wound up uh, doing very well with Gold's Gyms. And um, I, I was making so much money that I just didn't want to go back to that. We, we worked 67 days in a row one time. Valentine um, and Beefcake were on the tours with us, the Heart Foundation, uh, Jim Neidhart, of course, and, and Brett the Hitman Hart, and um, 67 days straight. And we were in four different countries. And I was worn out. And I'm listening to J Jimmy. We were, in Australia and Jimmy's missing his uh, kids, different functions. And I, it, it was getting like 
depressing. So after I gave my notice in Salisbury, worked another two weeks, Jimmy stayed there. And uh, I never stopped working because I had a deal in Japan. So I would go to Japan uh, for New Japan Pro Wrestling. And then uh, I worked for another guy, which is in the book. This was the greatest gig that I ever had in my life. Um, and uh, a guy named Tom Shade was running um, on the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, Sunday, and developed a great reputation at the military bases and Indian reservations. And we were booked every weekend making you know good money and I was home run the gyms and everything so even though I could have gone back to WWF my before I ever got there Vince Sr. was the one that named me B Brian Blair because he kept asking me what is beeper what is some people call you beeper some people call you beaver some people call you B so I explained how that came about and he goes he said to me, well, I want you to be B. Brian Blair. He goes, if you look in the phone book, there's a lot of Brian Blairs, but I want you to be B. Brian Blair. There's no B. B. Brian Blairs in the New York phone book. I said, okay. <laughs> you know, he's, he's had a great, I love Vince McMahon Sr., really did. And um, such a good guy. And so, you know, he talked to me about working for the Intercontinental Tag Team Championship when I came back, because I went there and the Florida tape went into New York and I had a, a really, they really liked the way I uh, worked and my work ethics. And, but I wound up coming back uh, with Jim Brunzel and uh, no regrets. Had a great time with Jimmy. Uh, you know, we spent a few years, three, four years, three, over three years together and uh, you know, made money and saved money and uh you know, when it was time to go, I mean, it's time to go. That's the one thing the Briscoes really drilled in me is, um, you know, the promoters are going to try to screw you. You got to kind of play their game and do the best you can. And, uh, but never, never uh, compromise your integrity. And I never compromised my integrity. And um, I wanted to do more with my life. And so I, went on and had gold gems, worked for UWF, worked for uh, um, uh, the gentleman I just said, Tom Shade, uh, worked in Japan and, and enjoyed it. And, um, uh, you know, wound up becoming the county commissioner, uh, did a lot of things, but the one thing I didn't do was go back to WWFE. Did you have uh, the gold gem? Did you start that with Steve Kern? Were you, were you partners from the start? No, no. Um, Steve was going through a tough time in his life, actually. And uh, Steve worked uh, in the, I had uh, built four Gold's Gyms, wound up condensing one on uh, at 78, 15 Northdale Mabry to 3689 West Waters, newer, bigger building. Had one in uh, a real nice place called Tampa Palms. The, the Dale Mabry was the one that we always worked out at. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. And um, so uh, um, Steve went from manager. Went to, I knew that I never had to worry with Steve because he was honest and hardworking. And he was probably making 1500 bucks a week then, uh, insurance, all the benefits. Uh, I said, uh, Steve, well, I think Steve asked me about ownership or something. I thought about it. Uh, you know, great. Soup, Steve and I were so close. And uh, so I sold him 
20% of Tampa Palms for 20 grand. And um, he, I wound up when I sold him the gym, writing him a check for, I think it was $178,000 after we sold him unsolicited for 2.1 million. So it was a, it was a good venture. <laughs> Brian, we, we've had Steve on and he told us a hilarious story and you got to back it up about the key situation. Oh, you mean when we were hunting? When he had your, had your key and you went out and you couldn't find your key to get in. Or no, it was Ed Barbara, the same guy who uh, his girlfriend, Tracy, hit beefcake. For some reason, Ed Barbara was always around uh, everything. Um, and uh, he, uh, <laughs> we were hunting. It was ravishing Rick Rude, um, Paul Orndorff and myself and Ed. And so we go up to these people we know in Georgia, in Ryan, Georgia, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna go hog hunting. And so Rick comes out of his bedroom there and he's got every kind of gimmick you can possibly buy. Uh, the fly thing hanging down the mosquito net, uh, just the boots, everything's camouflage. Orndorff told everybody not to take a shower for three days or the deer and the pigs could smell us. So we followed his advice, obviously, because um, he's the big hunter. And Ed Barbaro is just a rich city slicker guy. And he's with a bunch of wrestlers. So uh, we drove up in his brand new 735 BMW shiny. And uh, so it's <laughs> after all this, first we, the only, well, Kern and I wound up falling in the mud off of our three-wheeler or four-wheeler four and uh because they had both and uh we fell in this in this mud by this ravine after we saw this 300 pound hog and we were filled with mud and but uh it, this all this fun is about to come to an end right before the fun there was a 80 pound pig that ran in front of us and rick rude filled that thing so full of lead and Orndorff got on his butt so bad. Gosh, darn it, Rick, we got to eat that pig. It's got so much lead in it. Now it's poison. We can't eat it. Oh, I didn't know it was my first pig. I didn't know. I wanted to make sure he was dead. Had nailed him probably 50 times. You know? <laughs> and uh, so everybody's kind of in the rib mood and Ed Barbara's keys are laying in the coffee table. It's time packing up and he takes the key and he puts him, Steve Kern takes the key and he puts it up on this, there's all kind of animal heads on the wall and puts it on this little horn. And uh, now uh, it's time to go. And, you know, Ed's just in his glory being with the with Rick Rude and Steve Kern. So uh, Paul Orndorff, Mr. Wonderful, and uh, it's time to go. And uh, Paul's, you know, Oscar the Grouch is my nickname for Paul, but uh, John Studd named him that in Japan. I'll never forget Paul was yelling every minute. It was a six week tour and, you know, Paul couldn't go two weeks without getting, without kissing a girl. So, uh, you know, uh, John Studd turns around and says, Paul, you remind me of this show that my kids watch and there's this purple character in a garbage can. His name's Oscar the Grouch. So that's where Oscar came from. So Oscar's putting in the grouchy mood about, Ed, let's go, let's go, let's go. So now it's time to go. We got his stuff. Uh, ready to go and go down the car. It's going, my keys, my keys. I can't find my keys. It was like two hours. We decided, you know, we had some beer on ice. We knew we were going to be there for a little bit. And 
So the things that were said to him from Orndorff, uh, Rick Rude, you can only imagine those guys are tremendous, good on the mic, and they were cutting promos on Ed, and it was just absolutely hilarious. Finally, he looked up and saw him on this antler. God dang, you got so drunk you put your keys on the antler. Why the heck did you do that? I don't remember doing that. <laughs> it's hilarious. Steve's nonstop. You heard about the one he did to Kurt Henning right in Memphis. Oh, yeah, with the, uh, the illegal. <laughs> yeah, for statutory rape. He had the uh, judges. Yeah, he, told us, he told us that story. On oh, it's a great story. Great story. <laughs> in, in my book, Truth Be Told, on Amazon, actually, I have a picture of the warrant that's written out in, in the anecdotes. Great ribs <laughs> that I saw, you know, on the road. So Kurt Henning thought he was going to be gone. But he, he, he totally thought Tremendous. Tears in his eyes. I mean, <laughs> crying. I didn't commit statutory rape. I've never been to this town. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know, notice that the judge's name was Steve Kern on the on the wall. <laughs> it was great. So many great ribs. So you know, I don't think there's another business, another industry where you can have this much fun, make money, and you know, basically live the life of a rock star. And it's a, a tremendous business. It's a tremendous industry. Um, and you guys have all done it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's been awesome. Brian, it, uh, we can't thank you enough for, for jumping on here with us, man. Uh, we know. Jerry got so excited. He found your story written. That's because Ger Gerald's so cheap, he's still got the first dime he ever made. You know, Jerry's still got that AOL disc of dial-up internet that he's... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I know he wants this cassette back because he's still got his cassette player. Right That's why he's asking you about it. <laughs> I know what he wants his back so he can play it on his cassette player. But uh, I think he's still got... I didn't know you could get Zoom on a BlackBerry. <laughs> That's right. The best thing we do, Brian, is get BlackBerry four now. <laughs> the best thing we do, Brian, is try to get up a bunch of wrestlers who are used to dial rotary dial telephones on Zoom. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, awesome. Yeah. He's like Mayberry RFD still. Yeah, you, you know, <laughs> that's up. right. He just came from Floyd the Barber. Oh yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, uh, you know it's it's always Darling, Briscoe Darling, man. <laughs> yeah. So. Right. Hey, Brian, that, uh, Jerry told me we're, we're getting you on. I was so excited because uh, I've always uh, enjoyed watching you on everything you do. And so thank you so much for coming on our show. It's really, it really is an honor. I understand you have a book that might be coming out. I think it's on Amazon or something, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking, John. It's Truth Be Told. It's available on Amazon. And, you know, please write a review afterwards. You can see things. I got stories from... Uh, when we were in Kota Kintabalu in the island of Malaysia with the pygmy headhunters, and uh, this is what they used on the on the uh, uh, island of Sabah. Um, stories with well, Brian. Uh, Brian, you, you see, you see, you see the uh, the the wooden carving behind him, uh, John. That's actually uh, Meredith. His wife bought him that. It's a crypt. So when John dies, <laughs> he can just stuff him in that crypt. Nobody knows where he's at. I Ain't like no that. dang crypt. I, I like that. This is where this is an actual cattle prong. And uh, my wife was my valet. It looks like that thing you had when you had your orange T-shirt out and you're walking the roadside to me. <laughs> I put batteries in it and she stung Orton. Oh, my gosh, this moves bulls. 
And oh, Bob Orton was wanted to kick my wife's ass. I mean, he was so mad. It was crazy. Oh boy, so many good times. We only touched the surface, but get my book, Truth Be Told, and on Amazon, and you'll hear a lot more great stories that you didn't get to hear today. But you got to hear a lot of stories that uh, are the truth and weren't in the book. So. Close to it, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Close Absolutely. enough. Absolutely. Close enough.